Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Chapter 1, Dudley Demented. The hottest day of the summer so far was drawing to a close, and a drowsy silence lay over the large, square houses of Privet Drive. Cars that were usually gleaming stood dusty in their drives, and lawns that were... I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Tech-Isle. And this is Season 5 of Harry Potter and the, and the Sacred, Sacred Text. text. <laughs> Woo! You just couldn't... You I couldn't. couldn't help it. It's good to be back. Yeah, Hi. Vanessa, imagine, if you will, little Casper at nine years old. I love it. And I went to a spring camp in Holland just over a long weekend. Nothing too crazy. But obviously, you know, I spoke Dutch at home. But like being in Holland with other kids from a different country is always a little bewildering because you don't have the same TV shows. You don't have the same references. So I was pretty nervous. And then on the second or third night, there was like a big, scary haunted house. Nope. Hate it. Right? Yeah. You already know what's coming. No, I don't, but I'm mad for you already. (laughs) And I was a pretty, I don't know, scarable child, I guess. So I'm already freaking out a little bit and I'm like waiting to be one of the last people to go through the haunted house kind of sequence to get a sense of like, when do they scream? Like, what's going on? Can I prepare myself? Do they survive? Yeah. Do they come out the other end? (laughs) So it's my turn. And they've blocked out all the windows, all the lights are dark, and you kind of get led along this rope, which you have to follow, and then things happen to you. The first thing is some sort of cloth, which kind of drapes over you, and I'm like, okay, I'm fine, it's just cloth. And then the next thing is like, there's water on the ground, I'm like, oh, now my shoes are wet. And then suddenly someone grabs me by the ankle and I shriek so loudly. Then something is in my face that smells and turns out to be ketchup and I'm done. I'm like, I need to get out of this situation right now. And I just start screaming. I'm like, we need to turn the lights on. I've broken my leg. I I was fine. But like, I was so done. I needed any sort of escape from this situation. It was too much. So they turn the lights on and I see like all the camp leaders look at me like, ugh, you like ruined the game. I have to still pretend that my leg hurts, but also I just want to get out of there as quickly as possible. So I'm like, oh, it feels better now. (laughs) (laughs) And so I thought of that story as we've been reading this chapter through the theme of belief, because at the time that I was in this like little haunted house experience, I knew it wasn't real, right? I knew it was ketchup. I knew it was a piece of cloth. But I believed it was real. There was something in me which doubted the truth. 
so much that my brain, especially in this darkness all around me, created the reality that it was real. And I think that's what's happening here. Like the Dursleys know about the wizarding world, right? That's why Harry is there. That's why Petunia's childhood was what it was. But they don't want to believe it. And, I, you know, I think the same thing is true with how we respond to climate change. And I think even how the wizarding world is responding to Voldemort's rising again. They know it's real, but they won't believe it. So I want to dig into the difference there between kind of knowing and belief as we read this chapter. I just have so many feelings about the fact that they subjected you to that. They're asking you to believe it. It's dark. They're creating a sensory experience for you to believe that you are being attacked by, like, monstrous things. And then they get mad at you for being scared. They sound like terrible people. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I would like to share a story with you in which nine-year-old Vanessa, the whole fourth grade or fifth grade class, went on a field trip to a haunted house, and I refused to go in. And I was the only person in my entire grade who refused to go in and got ridiculed. And it is one of the, like, early memories I have of knowing that people were judging me and not caring. That's the thing I admire most about you. You are so wise to do that. Thank you. It was one of my first great moments, I think. But you're about to see another one of my best moments with my 30-second recap. Because here we go. Okay. Three, two, one. Harry has to sit under the windowsill in order to listen to the news. Also, climate change is real. So um, Harry Dudley is, like, really bulked up, and Harry is, like, walking around upset about the fact that he got caught for listening to the news, and he's, like, trying to pick a fight with Dudley, and he sees Dudley with his gang. And then Dementors come, and he expects to patron him and protects Dudley, and Mrs. Fig comes out and is like, oh, my God, I can't believe that there are Dementors here, and you better um, get home safe. I love that you said Dudley bulked up. It's like in high school when someone comes back from the summer and you're like, he is hot now. Yeah, I don't think Dudley is hot now, though. Is he? Use your imagination. Sacred imagination. Here's the thing. Handsomeness is about kindness. Also, he's 15. (laughs) Okay. That was a 26-second recap, right? Yeah, apparently not a lot happens in this chapter, (laughs) Vanessa. Shut up. On your mark, get set, go. So Harry's found a new hiding place among the bushes. He's lying underneath so he can hear the news on the TV because he's desperately trying to find out, like, has Voldemort risen again? He's getting a newspaper delivered by our... Well, he knows Voldemort's risen again, but, like, is everyone aware that Voldemort has risen again? Um, Okay, so then um, newspapers arriving every morning, but, like, no news. And then he hears a crack, and he's like, what is that? That sounds like Dobby, and he's looking. And then it turns out, um, we find out later, that it's Mundungus Fletcher. But, um, yeah, he's really, like, annoyed. So, what we have learned is that if you don't 30-second recap for a long time, you get worse at it. Vanessa, I want to start with something you actually mentioned in your 30-second recap. One of the two things I mentioned (laughs) in my 30-second recap. And it's not that Dudley bulked up, but it's that the first sentence of the whole book is the hottest day of the summer so far was drawing to a close. And I feel like that's something we've heard on repeat just about every summer at least in our lifetimes, that it's like it's always record-breaking, you know, fifth hottest year ever, hottest year ever, which, of course, is just one data point in the enormous set of data that points to the fact that our climate is changing and humanity is responsible. And I I found it so helpful to think about climate change throughout this chapter because, as you know, I used to be a climate activist, and so often all news coverage about climate change was going up to people on the street and being like, do you believe in climate change? Like, do you believe in climate change? 
or any debate that happened on TV was never between two climate scientists, but was like between a climate scientist and some willful ignoramus who was purposefully spreading doubt. And that's what's happening to Harry. What's happening to Harry is that he's existing in like an information vacuum, right? The adults in Harry's life and even Ron and Hermione, everybody is saying to him for good reason, but they're saying we can't communicate with you about this. And then certainly Petunia and Vernon aren't talking to him about what's going on in the world. And so he's trying to make his own meaning. I mean, I also feel like he is starting not to doubt his own experience, but there are questions arising. Like he doesn't quite know what to believe all of the time. For example, in the first few pages of of the chapter, it tells us, and then as his feeling of frustration peaked, his certainty leaked away. That was the central part of the chapter for me too, as far as Harry's like emotional arc. It's about whether or not he heard someone apparate or disapparate. And it's Harry was sure that the cracking noise had been made by, made by someone apparating or disapparating. And then his feeling of frustration peaked and the certainty leaked away. Perhaps it hadn't been a, ma- a magical sound after all. Right. And then he has this sinking sensation and hopelessness. And it made me think about how belief inherent in it will have moments of doubt, right? Mm. We talk about this a lot with faith. If you believe in something, you are going to have doubt. And in the moments of doubt, how do you deal with those feelings of hopelessness? Am I ever going to get out of this sense of doubt and be able to go back to my place of belief? I mean, and I guess this sort of gets to the central question about like, what does it mean to believe? To believe someone feels a little bit different than to have faith in something. To have faith in something means to believe in it sort of regardless of what the facts say. But if you believe in something, you think it's real based on fact, but even sometimes when facts go against it. Belief is just, a, it's a little bit of faith. That's one of those great moments where the word shows up in the text a couple of times in this chapter. And the Dursleys are kind of asking Harry about the, the owls that are coming every morning, that are delivering the daily prophets. And Harry says, the owls aren't bringing me news. And Aunt Petunia responds, I don't believe it. And I think that is an example where believing someone has so much to do with how you value their word. Like, do you trust them? Do you think they have integrity? And for Petunia, Harry is bad news, right? She doesn't believe anything that Harry's going to say. And Vernon certainly doesn't either. And she says, we know you're up to something funny, which struck me that it wasn't we know you're up to something evil, right? Like it's not necessarily destructive, but it's funny. It's different. It's untrustworthy. And so I think if the messenger is untrustworthy to your eyes, you're never going to believe whatever they say. So I, I feel like it has less to do with faith and maybe more to do with trust. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's so interesting about that moment is that they are both right. Yes. Petunia says, I know it's bringing you the news. And it is technically bringing him the newspaper. From a technical perspective, she's right. And then he's saying, it's not news that's helpful to me. So it's irrelevant. It's so interesting how much like two reasonable people and whether or not either Petunia or Harry are reasonable in this situation is questionable. But two reasonable people can look at the exact same thing, an owl bringing a newspaper, and come to the exact opposite, fairly reasonable conclusions. Petunia says, they are bringing you the newspaper, and Harry's like, they are not bringing me news. And that's actually interesting about belief. I mean, when you have different scientists look at the same data set, you can come to different conclusions. I mean, at least different nuances. And so people can come to very justifiable beliefs from the same set of experiences. Right. 
And that's something, you know, there are certain political points of view that are very different from mine, but that I have a profound respect for. And I think it is when we can at least agree, like, okay, but we both agree that this is a newspaper. Exactly. And that's what we're missing right now. Right. If I can say to even people who really, really disagree with me about things that are central to who I am, I am deeply, deeply pro-choice. But if somebody is consistent and they can make a coherent argument as to why, I completely disagree with their conclusion, but I will respect their opinion and respect where they are coming from, right? But if somebody says to me, point blank, you know, it's only poor women who abuse abortion, right? If they are just like disagreeing about facts with me, that is when I don't believe that their point of view is worth taking seriously. Mm. And I'm not saying that this is on Harry in this moment, but Harry is constantly, completely understandably and justifiably, taking these oppositional points with them. If he were to say to Petunia, they're bringing me the newspaper, but it actually doesn't have any news. They're, neither of them are conceding on anything. And so they're never going to believe each other because they are lying to each other. A hundred percent. And I think at this point in the books, whatever Harry is going to say, the Dursleys will reject. And whatever the Dursleys say, Harry will reject, right? At this point, the relationship is so broken, there's actually no room for shared belief. Because to share belief, it would break some of the, the inherent patterns of the relationship at this point, which would threaten their very selves. They are building themselves in opposition to each other. I mean, the whole focus again on, it struck me so much in the opening pages on normalcy, the fact that there's square houses, like all of the themes that we talked about in the opening chapter of book one are re-emphasized here to stress that division between these two. Well, and if the Dursleys want Harry, in theory, to be more muggle-like, why wouldn't they revel in the fact that he wants to watch the muggle news? Exactly. Right? Like, no matter what he does, it will reify to them that he is different and other and therefore bad. I mean, like, Harry is completely caught here. If Dudley suddenly wanted to watch the news, they would believe that that was a great thing. And I think that that's exactly right, that it gets to that something inherent in belief is trust. In order to believe someone, you have to trust them. Let's turn towards the second half of the chapter. So the Dementor attack happens. There's two of them because, you know, Dementors don't want to be lonely. (laughs) Dementors have feelings, too. (laughs) So the Dementors are attacking and the first expected Patronum that Harry tries to cast doesn't work. It's just this little silvery wisp. And then suddenly the image of Ron and Hermione comes into his mind. And that love for them is the positive image with which he casts the Patronus. And I suddenly thought about how much the Patronus charm is about belief. It is about believing in something better than the moment that you're in itself. And I thought about the very churchy thing of giving testimony of speaking to your experience and often your experience of God in the midst of suffering or or making it through a really difficult situation and now you've got to this other side. And just the way in which visualizing something better than what is right now is this great act of belief. I mean, I just saw the most amazing thing. So my partner has two kids and the six-year-old, we were practicing jumping into the water and she was very scared. And she said to me, hold on, let me just picture it. 
And she closed her eyes and pictured herself jumping into the water. And then she said, okay. And she jumped into the water. That's what like Olympic athletes do. I was like, you are a genius. You visualized it being true. And then it was true. And I asked her about it later. She said, I pictured I was okay. And then I was okay. And I think it was a belief in many things. I was there to catch her. So I think it was like a trust in me, even though she interviewed me to make sure that she could trust me. She was like, will you really catch me? I said, yes. She said, is it just because dad is here? And I said, no, I would catch you even if your dad wasn't here. So there was an interview process. Like, and she has swam before and like there was a floaty nearby. Like there was an ecosystem that had to create that. And then she was able to visualize it and then believe it and realize it. And I do think that belief is that complicated of a series of things. Right. And it's not like, I believe I'm going to get a check for a million dollars tomorrow, right? That's not right. that's not what we're talking about. This is something that he's done before. It's something, I mean, the very first time he was able to do it was because he had seen himself do it before, right? right. Like that circle of belief and fulfillment of that belief is getting stronger every time he casts a successful Patronus. And it was also based on like months of practice with Lupin, right? Absolutely. So I think that the books are making like this very compelling argument about belief that you have to be able to believe in yourself in order to accomplish things, but you also have to practice and the circumstances also have to be right. What do you make of the fact he has to tell the Patronus like, no, go that way, I help Dudley? Is this like Patroni inherently don't want to help muggles like is the patronus so used to not liking dudley he's like well we'll leave him behind like what is going on there that's so interesting what spoke to me about that moment was that he could communicate with the patronus yeah that they're like so connected alexa set the timer (laughs) yeah right that's such an interesting question though it struck me too i was like that's so nice that you can like chat with it I guess the thing that really strikes me in this whole scene is how much Harry believes that Dudley is worth saving. That is so interesting to me, too. And how Dudley doesn't believe Harry, that Harry is trying to protect him. Harry, I think, is, like, pretty clearly trying to clue Dudley in to, like, we've gone from being adversaries to now having to be on the same team. Right. And Dudley does not believe him. And he punches Harry. Yeah. It's A, amazing to me how quickly Harry does the switch from, like, we are fighting each other to we are against something else, which I always think that that's interesting. And that's the power of family. I think that familial connection is really evident here. Yeah, but, like, Dudley just doesn't get it. And part of me wonders if that is Harry's experience having bad things happen to him. It's like Dudley doesn't believe that there are actually ever going to be stakes where bad things happen. So he never is going to have to team up with Harry. What terrible thing is going to have to happen where I'm going to have to be on your side? So I think that this is Dudley being so lucky slash spoiled slash shielded from bad things happening in his life that he doesn't understand that there will ever be a point in his life where he has to team up with adversaries to fight something bigger. Mm. Whereas Harry so intuitively understands that. He's like, at the end of the day, I'm going to protect you from a Dementor. Do you know what just struck me? We talked so much in season one about Hermione meeting the troll and how that shifted her relationship to Harry and Ron. I think this is the moment which shapes Dudley's relationship to Harry that we see right at the end in book seven where he's like, oh, you're not so bad, you know? He's not processing it right now. He's still in the pain and the shock and throwing up of of the Dementor attack. But 
I think exactly as you're saying, this is the first time he's having to renegotiate his relationship to Harry. It's important that they're outside of the house. It's important that they're away from Dudley's parents because, it, yeah, there's a new bond between the two of them that holds them in this in this new relationship. It might also be the first time that Dudley has actually felt in danger in his oh, life or wow. like really scared or really confused. Because even in boxing, he became the regional champion, right? Like he's won even at this new sport. And anything that he hasn't succeeded at His parents have come home and told him, no, 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 you secretly succeeded. You just didn't, you know, you don't care about that pansy school stuff, right? Like everything has been justified for him. And this is something that he, I think you're exactly right, is going to have to make meaning of on his own. Yeah, his parents can't explain away this experience. Right. So, Casper, this week we are going to start a new spiritual practice, new to us spiritual practice, not new in the world spiritual practice. (laughs) Broderick Greer was on last season and talked to us a lot about the practice of marginalia. And so what we have decided to do is take margin notes in our books and then swap books with each other. We're swapping books right now. And we are going to look at each other's margin notes as if they were sacred in their own right, just like we treat Florilegia as if it was sacred in its own right. And I think that there's a really exciting conversation to be had about whether or not J.K. Rowling's tweets are margin notes on the books that we want to take a sacred we for the sake of this podcast are not doing that. But, you know, there's a great tradition of monks writing in margin notes of Renaissance texts. You can look at 16th, 17th century Bibles, and there are a lot of great margin notes from monks. And then 100 years later, another monk will be commenting in the same margin because before the printing press, you know, there were so few and so limited copies of these texts. So we will see what we learn from each other's. I'm not a great margin note taker, so we'll see what you can make of it. I'm just going to put my finger on, like, the first note I see. So what I see is that you underlined the sentence, Harry thought he was to be congratulated on his idea of hiding here. You underlined that and wrote, always looking for affirmation. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, Vanessa's face right now is doing that kind of face where it's like, isn't that ironic? (laughs) The word projection comes to mind. (laughs) Listen, this is something I will totally own. I need a ton of affirmation to make it through any day. I mean, I once worked for a wonderful woman, Sue Phillips, who actually officiated my wedding and is now a colleague, but she was my boss at the time. And um, I I had to sit her down and say, Sue, you need to praise me more. You have given me that feedback as well. And it is like not something that comes naturally to me because I think nice thoughts about you and people and I like don't think to say them. And since you've given me that feedback, I like will have a nice thought about you and be like, oh, text Casper that. You know, I think we all have different love languages, right? There's that famous book of the five different love languages and words of affirmation is definitely a big one for me. I just see Harry wanting to do the same. Like he needs to be told that he's doing the right thing or that he's special. There's an ugly side to it in this chapter where everyone who doesn't agree with Harry is by definition stupid in his eyes. I hope I don't live out that so much. But I definitely identify with Harry wanting to be told that he's doing the right thing. You know, he's getting all of these messages from Arthur and from Ron and Hermione and from Sirius. But like no one is saying, hey, 
you like survived another meeting with the Dark Lord. You're being a good boy and not creating too much stress and strain in the Dursley household. Like thumbs up for you, big guy. And he's just having to self-talk throughout the whole summer. And that that gets kind of exhausting. And after a while, you stop believing it. Yeah, no, I think that that's so helpful. How meaningful would it be to Harry if in Ron's note he was like, and by the way, I just thought about it again, and I can't tell you how impressive I think it is that you brought back Cedric's body. I hope you're doing okay. Yeah. Just any sort of, like, gesture, you know, like anything. Let me let me find one in your notes here. Vanessa, I'm picking up on something we touched on before. You underlined, perhaps it hadn't been a magical sound after all. Perhaps he was so desperate for the tiniest sign of contact from the world to which he belonged that he was simply overreacting to perfectly ordinary noises. And you wrote underneath the word doubt plus hopeless. And to me, that just kind of signals that that moment I call it going into the doom spiral, like you open the door to the curly-whirly slide that goes all the way down, and you start with just a little bit of doubt, and then you're going down, you're like, oh, I don't believe anything anymore, and then you're like, belief itself is fake, I'm not real, help, 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 and then you're down in that hopeless drain. That's what I see you referencing here. Yeah, I feel like our listeners know this, and I'm sure... I'll be ready to talk about it in a more productive way in a few months. But I've been very sick for the last six months. And I just got a diagnosis, which was very good news because it's super treatable and great. But the last month or two before I got my diagnosis, doctors were starting to ask me questions like, oh, do you have a very stressful job? Are you a very nervous person? Mm. I was really starting to doubt whether or not I was sick. I mean, it's humiliating because being sick has made me cancel plans. It has made me break promises. It has made me be a bad communicator with people because I just, like, would lose days to feeling sick. And so by them questioning whether or not my sickness was, quote, unquote, real, there was such self-doubt of, like, have I been faking this? Have I been, like, not the person who I think I am? And then when the diagnosis came through, I, like, finally got to rewrite myself is like, no, I am a person with integrity and who keeps promises and who reaches out to friends and like doesn't cancel things. There has just been something wrong with me. But there was such a doom spiral and just like weeks. It was absolutely identity shattering. And so for Harry in this page where he like, he knows what apparition sounds like. He knows what he heard. And to just go through this like complete self-doubt doom spiral. I think it is an absolute doom spiral. I just so empathize with him as I like have gone through these last few weeks of knowing what it feels like to be like, who am I? Like, maybe I don't even know what magical sounds sound like. Is there someone named Dobby? I don't know. Right. <laughs> this is so interesting. Like you underlined the use of host pipes had been banned due to drought. Like, I have no idea why. <laughs> Probably because I'm a Californian and I'm like, mm-hmm, I understand. <laughs> I was like, yes, let's ban the use of hose pipes to wash cars during a hot summer because clean cars don't matter. So, yes, I do love that sentence. So I'm on a page here where you have hand things circled again and again. So as though some giant hand had dropped a thick icy mantle over the entire alleyway, a fist made contact with the side of Harry's head, and then a pair of gray, slimy, scabbed hands slid from inside the Dementor's robes. And you just have it, hand images equals pettigrew. 
So this is really interesting, and it's making me have the thought for the very first time, and our listeners are going to think I'm an idiot. But Peter Pettigrew is once voluntarily sacrifices part of his own hand. He cuts off his own finger to escape serious and go into hiding. And then he, like, unwillingly sacrifices his hand. And then his own hand sort of betrays him. I do think that Peter's hand is super interesting. And I'm wondering why that came to mind, though, when talking about this is Dudley's fist and the Dementor's hand. And the third one is a metaphorical hand. So I'm wondering, how would reading these all as, like, Peter Pettigrew's hand change our reading of this page. I was so conscious that we've just finished book four, where, of course, the sacrifice of the hand into the cauldron happens. But the fact that his new silver hand is not totally his own, and ultimately is the thing that saves Harry. Like, that hand cannot be trusted. It has a has a mind of its own. It has a loyalty of its own in some way. Its loyalty is to Harry, exactly. not to Voldemort. Exactly. And that's what really struck me about not just those three, but throughout the chapter, there's all of this hand imagery. It made me think about, like, who is a trustworthy character? I mean, like, the last thing that Dudley does with his hands is hit Harry before Harry then protects Dudley. Well, and his hands cover his face. His hands have this protective... It's the final barrier between the soul and the Dementor in this case. Yeah, that's so interesting. Your hands as a shield, but also as a weapon. Yeah. Yeah. What also strikes me about these different hands that I circled in the text was hands are so fundamental. They represent so much of who we are as human beings, right? Are, Are your hands calloused from work? Are they bloody from battle? The fist from Dudley represents his strength and his his resistance. The hand of the Dementor is supposed to represent how vile the creature of the Dementor is. And that Peter Pettigrew's hand, like he's willing to cut off his hand. He's willing to cut out the friends of his life. Like he's literally willing to do anything. Nothing is sacred to Pettigrew. I think that's what we see in him being willing to cut off his own hand because how you lose it matters, right? Is it through disease or, or saving someone or is it selling out the people that you're supposed to be loyal to? I think that's so interesting. I'm so glad that you noticed that and circled it in your chapter. I like marginalia. Let's keep doing this. And even if we don't add words as commentary, even just like circling two things and putting them in relationship with each other reveals whole new aspects. That's yes. cool. And hopefully we will get better at it. This week's voicemail is from Emily Anderson. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. This is Emily in Woodstock, Georgia, calling to say I adore your podcast and I am so excited that you are about to start season five because Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is my favorite book in the series. After your episode discussing what you're excited for in this book, I started thinking about who and what I was excited for, and I immediately thought of Arabella Fig. I'm eager to see what y'all have to say about her, but I want to go ahead and offer a blessing for her. As a squib, she has spent her whole life being looked down on and excluded by the society she was born into. Yet when Voldemort returns, Mrs. Fig shows up to help the resistance. As a member of the Order of the Phoenix, she knows it is secret work for which she will probably never receive recognition. But she chooses to help anyways, because in spite of what her society's been telling her her whole life, she knows she absolutely has something to offer, that she has talents and abilities because of who she is. I think Mrs. Fig is one of the bravest characters I've ever read. 
because her resistance speaks her truth to power, both the established power of the wizarding world and the threatening power of Voldemort and his Death Eaters. Mrs. Fig, in showing up, wins some real victories. Where would Harry Potter be if not for Mrs. Fig taking care of him every summer throughout his childhood, watching out for him when the Dementors attack, and speaking her truth for him at the Ministry of Magic hearing? Bless you, Mrs. Fig, and everyone like you who shows up and helps in spite of what others expect of them, in spite of what society says you are or are not. Keep speaking your truth. Thanks, y'all. So, Emily, we will admit that we partially picked your voicemail because we love it, but we also partially picked it because you attached amazing photos of your son, Peter, who is wearing a T-shirt that says, Snuggle the Smuggle. <laughs> oh, my God. Which, not going to lie, sort of one for myself, but that's fine. So just, you know, like, give him a kiss for us. And we're definitely going to talk more about Mrs. Fig in the next chapter, but just, like, the way she comes barreling in at the end of this chapter I agree with you. She is just an absolute hero of these books. And I, you know, and I hope of Harry's life and that we don't know what happens after the books, but I hope that he visits her frequently because she was so good to him. You know, that's making me think that actually Mrs. Fig is kind of like a prototypical parent, right? Like we're not witches and wizards and we can't shape the entire worlds for our children, but we can do whatever we can, we can do what Mrs. Fig is doing here, which is to accompany and to protect with all her power a child who's in her care, even if she can't stop what's happening in the world around him. So Casper, Emily has led us beautifully in a blessing, but I'm wondering who you would like to bless this week. Well, I was really struck by one name who we only hear once in the entire books, which is a little boy called Mark Evans, who is victim to Dudley's gang. And we learn so much about Dudley going around and beating up mostly smaller kids with his group of friends when his parents think he's going out to tea. And Mark is just picked on for no reason, aside from the fact that he is small and easy to beat up. And so I just feel like there's another, not anonymous, but certainly hidden victim of this whole narrative. And uh, yeah, for anyone who just feels like they're being picked on and beat up by the playground bully, whether it's in an office or in a family or wherever it is, this blessing is for you. How about you, Vanessa? So I know that we're going to talk more about this next week, but I will even bless Mrs. Fig for the way she comes barreling in at the end of this chapter. And I think that we often ignore, especially older women, for their physical appearances. Mrs. Fig is described, her grizzled gray hair was escaping from its hairnet, a clanking string shopping bag was swinging from her wrist, and her feet were halfway out of her tartan carpet slippers. And she's just portrayed as this prototypical, harried, like silly old woman. And I love how inverted that image immediately becomes, right, where she starts bossing Harry around and calling him an idiot boy. And then we find out that basically she's an underground spy. And I love the idea that these people who we traditionally as a society dismiss are secretly providing these incredible services to our communities. And I just love the way that she is simultaneously embodying sort of like silly little lady and also like badass spy. 
You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. Send us a two-minute blessing or a short voicemail to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 2, A Peck of Owls, through the theme of frustration. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. The three of us are back in the studio for the first time in months, and it's good to see you both. You too. <laughs> our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and you can find out more about our pilgrimage in Japan at readingandwalkingwith.com. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network, where you can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thanks to Emily Anderson for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy and Amanda Madigan for their tireless work, and the wonderful Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Bye! Inspired by Harry, I'm going to tell all my stories in caps lock. <laughs> You can't make fun of him for having PTSD. You sound mean. <laughs> <laughs>